If you've recovered from COVID-19 or unknowingly been exposed to it, you may have antibodies that could help COVID-19 patients. Donate blood and receive testing for COVID-19 antibodies. Visit Vitalant.org today. A different future starts with you. That's why GoDaddy does more than help you find a name. You can create, sell, and get found online so any small business can make a change. We need a new generation of thinking, your way of thinking. Start different at GoDaddy.com. This is an ode to Napa cabbage. Of all the cabbages on all the cabbage farms, only you have the crisp crunch worthy of our Bibigo Korean dumplings. No other cabbage would do, because no other cabbage tastes like you. We love you, Napa cabbage. Just don't tell Green Onion. Napa cabbage, one of many obsessively crafted ingredients in every hearty, flavorful Korean dumpling from Bibigo. Go handcrafted. Go Bibigo. Authentic Korean dumplings now in the freezer aisle. Hello, it's Mark Reed Edwards. Welcome back to Confessions of a Marketer. This time we have another visit with Ben Afia, who describes himself as the language strategist with a goal of making companies more human in their culture, brand, and communications. Ben was one of the first to bring attention to tone of voice and now works with companies around the globe. I worked with him, if you can believe it, more than a decade ago on a tone of voice project, and we've kept in touch ever since. In fact, he was an early guest on this podcast on episodes 3, 22, and 61. Now we're 180 episodes in. It's great to have him back on. It's always a pleasure, Ben. Welcome. Thanks for having me back, Mark. Absolutely. Always lovely to talk to you. We always have a good chat, don't we? Yeah, it's always always fun to catch up. And mm. I just love how you have evolved your business. And I thought before we start, maybe for those who haven't uh, heard you earlier, you could share your background and how you ended up being a language strategist or the language strategist, actually. Indeed, the. Yeah, absolutely. Well, my background was generally in selling and marketing. Before I arrived at uh, Boots the Chemist in the UK, which is part of Walgreen now, Mm -hmm. and my job there was to organize and coordinate writing so that the business could have a consistent tone of voice and a consistent way of writing and speaking, whether it was in customer service, people talking in store, whether it was the words on packaging or the annual report. And they were first, and this is 17 or 18 years ago, and they were one of the first organizations to really think about how they managed language. So my job was to find the best writers in the land and bring them back to work for Boots and to develop a first brand tone of voice. So this was when this little piece of jargon started to emerge. So it was quite a unique time and an interesting area to gain some experience. And when I left Boots, I thought, well, I'll I'll use that specialism. and then went on to consult with companies like um, Eon, the energy company, Aviva Insurance, Allianz Insurance, even Google, Ronseal, where I helped them work out what to say on the tin, Twinings, the tea brand. So quite a range of different companies who wanted to have some sort of control over how they spoke, how they wrote, and the messages that they were giving to their customers. Yeah. And it's not just the words on packaging or the words on a website, you actually work with 
people in customer service. You work with uh, the people who write contracts and things like that, don't you? Absolutely. So the interesting thing that I noticed working at Boots and then with the clients that I've worked with since then is that quite often the language that is in things that customers come across is influenced by all sorts of different things that are going on around the business. So you could rewrite a a letter or an email that's going to customers, but if you don't reach all of the teams that have a stake in that letter, then it doesn't stay changed. It gets put back somewhere down the line. And by all those teams, what I mean is every team in the customer journey, so through customer service, all the way from marketing, from brand, but also people in compliance, in product, in legal. So lots of people have a stake in the communications that reach customers. And unless you control, you have some sort of control over how that comes about, you actually can't really control what customers see and what customers experience. And really this comes down to, you know, who you are as a business and what sort of experience do you want your customers to have? Yeah. I know when we worked together in 2009, 2010, the company that I was at, we were trying to refine the brand. We weren't really rebranding the company, but we were choosing a kind of new visual language and we kind of tweaked the logo and the colors. I don't think the company at that point had a stomach for completely rebranding. But part of the project, I had to go to the CMO and to my VP of marketing and convince them, yeah, we need to do the visual side of it, but we also need to think about the way we use words. And it took some convincing. It wasn't something because they were obviously visual people and they saw the website, didn't really read it, and just said, yeah, we need to fix some stuff there. But do we really need to worry about the words? And so that's my next question for you. What do words have to do with a brand and why are they so important? Yeah, it's interesting. And it's a perspective that I come across frequently. And one of the problems that I've noticed in marketing, I think, is that quite often brand and brand strategy is developed by large agency groups, maybe an advertising agency or a brand agency. And as you say, these are visually focused agencies. They're focused really on advertising. And so the teams that hire them, they're also focused on advertising and the broader communication that is driven visually. But the problem that can come about when you're when you have a visual emphasis, a visual bias, if you like, is that you can end up with things that aren't reflected in the service delivery. So one example, I was working with Vodafone's contact centers in India two or three years ago, and they were launching a new UK brand strategy, a new strap line. And I was out in India with the contact centers. And these are the guys who are chatting with customers day to day. So you'll see the advertising, you'll see some of the marketing, you might go, well, I'm interested in that product, or actually, that's prompted me to get in touch because I have a problem or whatever it is, and you get onto web chat or you you call customer service and the delivery of that service doesn't sound the same as the marketing. And this is because, and this is summed up when I was with these guys, I was working with a training team who were going to be rolling out some training to a thousand people on UK web chat alone in Vodafone India. And I asked them, what do you think of your new brand strategy? How does that new strap line sit with you? And I had a lot of blank looks. They hadn't been briefed. Nobody bothered to tell them. And this sums up the problem for me. And this is the thing that I think marketers have really got to tackle, that they have to be thinking about 
how is that message, how is that tone going to be delivered through the words, the language that the people use in customer service and in stores so that it's not just a marketing promise. So it's how do we match up the marketing with the service delivery? And that's how we can create a consistent brand. And I think brand historically has been focused on marketing. And actually, many brands now, I think, are understanding that their brand is their customer service. Yeah. It's the company, right? It it is the essence of the company. And every point at which customers and prospects interact with it, that's the brand. Absolutely. And so to Vodafone's credit, what they then did was they worked very, very hard to match up the marketing promise with the service delivery. And I think that worked. And I know that a year later when I checked back in, that was working. They were getting more consistency. Their customer satisfaction ratings were higher. Absolutely. It is the business. It's the values and the behaviors throughout the business. It's just how they get reflected in marketing and in customer service. That's the the front end, I suppose. But it's really about the beliefs. Yeah. It's that overused word that we hear all the time, experience, right? It's It really is the experience that you have with a company that defines the brand in your mind mm. that matches the way the company wants it to be. You kind of define the brand in your mind and your loyalty is either cemented or ruined based on that experience. Absolutely. And I think in in a way, that's the definition of brand, isn't it? Brand is not what you create as a business. It's what your customer thinks of you is how you is the space that you take up in your customer's brain, the position that you take up versus other products and services in their brain. And I think that's something that has really interesting that's happened over the last 10 years since we first worked together is that the competitive sets for brand are much broader And what I mean by that is that there are certain global brands now, and because of internet and social and different ways of selling, have set the standard. So you might be in financial services, but your customer is not comparing your service delivery with other financial services companies. They're comparing you with Amazon and their experience with Amazon. And they're not comparing your customer support with your competitors in financial services, they're comparing you with a call that they might have with Apple. So there are certain brands that are transcending categories and I think are leading standards in all sorts of areas of customer experience. So your comparison, you know, but often I come across businesses and they're just looking at their competitors, their direct competitors. And I think that we need to, as marketers, we need to be thinking more broadly and good marketers are thinking in terms of customer experience. And if I'm starting to notice that those job titles are starting to become blended and people who I once thought of as marketers now have customer experience titles. So that is starting to, to shift. Well, if you're a digital marketer and you're in charge of creating a website where customers and prospects come, that's a customer service role you're creating an experience for customers and prospects. Yeah. And you need to put yourself in the shoes of the customer. It reminds me of your thought that, you know, people are comparing you to Amazon or Google or, you know, other companies, Apple, that you have experience with. It reminds me of early on in my career, I did a lot of video. I would do videos with the chairman of the board of the company that I worked with. 
And we always struggled to get enough money to produce the video because they said, well, we're a retailer in the Northeast and we don't need to spend that much money because it's just an internal thing. And I would always say, yeah, people are not thinking that when they see the video, the employees don't think, oh, well, this is just an internal video. They see video and they think, well, I want it to look like the network news. And so we always cared about production values, but often companies wanted to skimp on that. Absolutely. And I think standards have shifted. So, you know, in particular with video, I guess we can look at good YouTubers, the YouTubers with millions and millions of followers. Yeah. And the production standards that they follow. And it's so unlike what most businesses create, isn't it? Because Mm -hmm. somehow, I suppose, traditional ways of planning and delivering marketing lead to a certain more corporate way of delivering things. And actually, YouTube has shaken up how we expect video. And I think the same is is true for social media in general. So if you think of Snapchat and and so on, the, you know, the, the ways of communicating have become much more nimble. So, um, and certainly during the pandemic, we've seen that. Absolutely. And I think there's, uh, there's a big shift that's happening there. And I've noticed there seem to be two camps of, of organizations. And I'm thinking about how they look after their staff, actually. So some brands, some companies have adapted to how they communicate with their people much more easily and much more flexibly. And they've been able to look after their people much better than other companies that have been a bit more stuck. And I think that Mm. reflects in the service that customers get and the marketing that comes out to customers. Because we're working from home and we're working on video, we're not necessarily wearing suits to work anymore. And I think that's created some less formal uh, forms of communication. And what it's stimulated in some of my clients is they've come to me looking for more help with empathy skills. Mm-hmm. Um, where, you know, you would have always assumed that empathy would be a crucial element. But actually, when you're inside an organization, it can be quite hard to be looking outside, even as a marketer, you know, that's your job. But it can be very easy to be wrapped up in the day-to-day machinations of what's going on within the business. Processes, meetings, meetings after meeting after meeting, thinking about how we do things. And it's quite easy for organizations to lose sight of the connection with customers And so, yeah, people have been asking me for help with empathy. And Mm. they're very aware that the messaging that they might have used pre-pandemic might not land in the same way. And they're much more sensitive to how those words are coming across and how that tone is landing, how it's making customers feel. I think that empathy is lacking in a lot of communication, especially early on in in the pandemic. We got all those form letters from, you know, emails from... Oh, yeah. Companies saying, you know, our customers are very important to us and uh, we know what you're going through. But there wasn't any real feeling behind it. It was just like, well, I saw American Express did that, so we'd better do it. Yeah. You know? And actually, I've been gathering, so I've gathering these examples because I thought some of them were great, bad examples. Yeah. And, you know, when you get an email from a chief exec of a company that you've not done anything, when you've not bought from for five years, Mm. And they're now using this as an excuse to communicate. Now, I don't know whether that means, you know, that's because their database isn't sufficiently segmented that they that they can only reach their recent customers or they just have to spam all customers. But to me, it felt like spam. And I got quite a few of these emails. Yeah. It made me quite angry, actually. They, oh, they were yeah, really they triggering. Were. 
they were galling because in some ways, because they were just, first of all, they assumed a relationship. And like you said, a lot of them came from companies that I had maybe, I'll mention a name. I get email. I used FedEx once to ship something overseas or somewhere, and I had to create an account. And they assume that I have a relationship with them. Even though I've unsubscribed from their promotional emails, I got, you know, the the standard email and I get phone calls from them like I do business with them all the time. And it just seemed kind of inappropriate almost that they would send me a, an email. It's not as though it's like Google, which I have a relationship with, or Amazon or some of the other companies, Apple, that I have relationships with. And I would say, okay, yeah, it was good that they sent me that. But uh, some things just come out of left field. I think this thing can be wrapped up in one word that I struggle with, which is loyalty. Yeah. Marketers refer to consumer loyalty all the time, don't they? And I don't think we're loyal. I think there are very few brands that you could say we're genuinely loyal to. And, you know, a company like Apple, for example, I must stop mentioning them because they're such a cliche in a way, but, you know, we might consider ourselves loyal to Well, actually, I have a lot of Apple products, but I wouldn't say I'm loyal to them. I'm loyal to my partner and my children and my friends. Right. So I think in marketing, we tend to use words that actually suggest a certain level of relationship that actually isn't there. It doesn't exist. But because we use the word, you could call it a euphemism, I suppose, we were setting the nature of a relationship that actually isn't there. And we're so inwardly focused within the business on what we're doing. But as a customer, we don't care. We have busy lives. We have, you know, what we care about is our friends and our family, the people that we love. We don't care about businesses generally, unless they're local businesses, perhaps. And there will be people that will go, you know, places that will go and people that will buy from regularly where we have more of a personal relationship. But for big brands, when we're marketing big brands, I don't think people really care about us particularly. Yeah, and I wonder whether loyalty in the human sense is something where there's no expectation of a financial return or you have loyalty to your partner and your kids, but it's not a financial relationship. With Apple, I've got a lot of their products and it's a financial relationship. Yeah. You know, I pay them money and they give me either a service or a product. Yeah, yeah. And um, that in a way can feel a bit of a burden, can't it? Especially if you're mm-hmm. in the Apple ecosystem. Um, it definitely is. And, you know, I look at other products like maybe smart speakers and you think yeah but that's not really in the ecosystem so is it loyalty or is it some other psychological condition well it's a trap isn't it i mean how did they convince us that we need a watch buzzes us every five seconds right uh, and continues to alert us and actually keep sending our data to them so it's a very considered getting an apple watch but i just kind of I may get one at some point. Part of it just makes me uneasy that I would have technology with me all the time. Yeah, and I, yeah. You know, I try and put my phone down, you know, for a couple of hours every night. And, you know, I want to just sometimes just disconnect. Yeah. You know? But it is that ecosystem that you get kind of drawn into. I think yeah. Apple is unique. I don't think the Android ecosystem is quite as 
connected as the Apple ecosystem. And no. Amazon certainly has an ecosystem, but it doesn't feel quite as self-contained. No, Apple have done a much better job of that. And um, they've sucked me in further recently. I was on a <laughs> Samsung phone until a couple of months ago. I had uh, iPhones before. I came back to iPhone literally a couple of months ago, and I always wanted to have a foot in one more than one camp. I had a, yeah. a MacBook and a Surface Pro because I didn't want to be trapped in an ecosystem. But as they've developed... The surfaces are really good. They're great devices, yeah. but they're not as easy to use in many right. ways. And there is something, so they're doing something very, very cleverly. And I'm so I'm thinking, well, what does this mean for language? And is language one of the tools that they're using? I think Apple are very good storytellers. Yeah, I think they're very good myth weavers. They're very good at creating a narrative around a product or a service or a thing that we we don't even know that we need yet. In a sense, that's what marketing's job is, isn't it? Is to create a story that we we believe, that we buy, and we we decide that we need something, and the story becomes the reality. Increasingly, well, Apple is very good at emphasizing the positives, and then you know you read about one of their products, and you know, like the MacBook Pro has a really bad uh, camera in mm. it, right? But they don't talk about that. They emphasize everything else. And they're really skilled at kind of making you uh, not worry about their deficiencies. Yeah. It is quite extraordinarily <laughs> extraordinary how they manage this, isn't it? Because yeah. what then gets out into you know, out at you know, the podcasters and the YouTubers and every all the reviewers just then start amplifying that story. And yes, there are naysayers and there are people who are critical but somehow the positive story wins out. So they've been very, very skillful at PR, very good at weaving a story, very good at emphasizing the benefits. And we were having this conversation in one of the Facebook groups for remote speakers, as in public speaking, uh, mm -hmm. just recently, somebody talking about upgrading her camera and hadn't realized that actually the MacBook webcam is only 720p. Yeah, yeah, which, yeah. You know, it may not matter to most people, but it's not a very good quality camera compared to what you can get now. Especially when you consider that, you know, it's going to get crunched by, uh, you know, the connectivity and uh, it's lighting becomes an issue. If you're trying to look really professional yeah, and do some kind of, you know, remote speaking, mm. you want something high quality. Yeah. And, and that's increasingly the case, isn't it? So now that everybody's working at home or at work a bit and then back at home, I think this is changing the world of work. And I wonder how that's going to change the world of marketing and the language mm. that we use, because we need to think much more carefully about how we present ourselves, don't we? I think the, the speaking uh, world has been thinking about lighting and cameras and that sort of thing. But I'm now working with clients and they'll see the picture that I've worked quite hard on and they'll go, how do you get that? How do we get there? So it's a different emphasis, isn't it? And we are so much more dependent on text as well as yeah. speech. And misunderstanding is much easier because we're working more remotely. And so I think we're going to be more and more dependent on language, aren't we? Yeah. If you've recovered from COVID-19 or unknowingly been exposed to it, you may have antibodies that could help COVID-19 patients donate blood and receive testing for COVID-19 antibodies. Visit Vitalant.org today. So I want to talk about values. Mm. Um, Steve Jobs famously in a pirated video from 
uh, like 1997 or 98, said, you know, marketing is about values. And I think it's right. It really reflects what you think. And could you read a company's website and collateral and get an idea of what their values are, do you think? I think you absolutely can. It depends on the kind of website. So if you look at Amazon, which is a very transactional website, you have to dig to get much copy. So it's very sales focused. Mm-hmm. Um, although interestingly, just you know, to have a quick look at their homepage, you notice a lot of capitals. So it sort of feels like they're shouting quite a lot. Amazon is proof that ugly can be effective. Yeah, absolutely. So it's all heavily optimized and tweaked to, you know, root you in the right direction so they get the right response and the result from you. But all of the words, all of the language on any website, on any collateral gives you clues as to what an organization believes, what a company believes in. And, you know, we've heard a lot in recent months about brand purpose and a lot of skepticism about brand purpose as well, I think. But through COVID, I think this has become even more important because consumers, people, I hate the word consumer, actually. I think we need to ban it from the marketing dictionary. But people are more conscious of where they're buying from. And they care more increasingly about who they're buying from and the ethics, the values behind those organizations. And if you're not managing the link between your values and the language on your site, the, the language that customers see, then you don't have control over it. And that language absolutely gives clues as to an organization. I was thinking of an example. So I had a letter recently from um, a bank in the UK, well, a global bank, I think, Santander. Yeah. And I was I had my business banking with them for many, many years, uh, for about 14 years. I just wanted to change somebody on my account. I was changing a bookkeeper wanted to take somebody off my account. And just one sentence, I think, kind of gives this away. Unfortunately, we are unable to proceed with your amendments due to the following reasons. Now, the whole letter is as turgid as that and legalistic, actually. And if you thought that a couple of their values include words like simple and Mm -hmm. fair I read the full letter out sometimes when I'm running workshops or doing talks and and I get people to close their eyes and listen and see how they feel, what emotional reaction they get to it. And then when I flash the values up, they're shocked. You know, there's no relationship between the values and the language in the letter. If you were to have something that was simple or that was fair or that was more human, you wouldn't write like that. You would say, I'm really sorry, but we're not able to do this without this certain information. Or... As soon as you give us this information, we'll update your details. Yeah, turn it positive. Turn it positive, use more active language, be more direct, more human, more conversational. So this is when, you know, the legal team have too much power. (laughs) I'm not saying that legal teams shouldn't have much power because the job of the legal team is to protect the business and to protect customers. But this is where the tensions between teams within the organization actually come through and they reveal themselves in the language that customers see. So if you think about the communications customers receive, who's had an influence, who's had a say, and where does the power lie within the organization, within the culture, and how's it being reflected in what people are actually receiving? So that brings me to my next question, and that is that everyone in a company writes Everybody writes emails. Hmm. Some people write web copy. Customer service people have interactions with customers every day. 
lawyers write contracts, executives write standard operating procedures and emails to staff. Mm. How can you get all of those people using the same tone and singing from the same song sheet, as it were? Yeah. Well, absolutely. You have all of those people. So it's quite challenging, isn't it? And the thing that I've realized is that because language is about culture, it's about culture change, which is maybe not what people are thinking about on the surface. But the way that I've found works, that really works and helps an organization to transform is by working from within and recruiting a team of enthusiasts or champions, if you like. So to give one example, I was working with a bank in the UK and they had noticed that their language uh, in some cases was causing complaints, but the behavior, the way that they were looking after customers was good. So when I looked at their communication and I sat with people on the phone, sat with brokers, handling mortgages in customer service, what I noticed was that actually the behavior was very strong. They were a very talented and enthusiastic and passionate bunch of people who really wanted to do the right thing for customers. But that wasn't being reflected when they put things into email or into letters or on the website. So how do we close that gap? So we recruited a team of champions from every point in the customer journey. So we looked at everything that can influence something that a customer sees, experiences, or feels, right from the creation, how they create products in the first place, uh, through to the compliance and legal teams, into marketing and how we market and sell those products, through to customer service, all the way through the chain of customer service until the end of a product. And so we recruited a champion from every team in that journey and brought them together. And I use an approach called appreciative inquiry, which tries to turn the inbuilt human kind of bias towards negativity. You know, we tend to be scanning the environment for danger. We're looking for saber-toothed tigers or snakes, threats. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's human nature to look for problems and trying to find solutions to them. And... What appreciative inquiry does, it starts from what's already working because there's always good in every organization, in every culture. And so if we start by saying, what do we like when we're really at our best? You start to have a different conversation. So we bring this team of champions together and we start by telling stories of times we're at our best. And from those stories, we get some themes and those start to suggest the sorts of behaviors and actions and things that we do when we're really on fire when we're really looking after each other and looking after customers well. And that picture then gives you a great starting point for defining, okay, so how do we now, how do we want to sound? And so with that team, you're then listening to what every part of the business needs, every part of the organization needs from a voice written and spoken. And that team can help you then shape what you might call tone of voice guidelines. Some people call it brand language or verbal identity. Mm -hmm. But if you develop that identity from within, it feels much more true to the culture. And the difference here with visual identity, visual identity is managed by marketing people and designers. It's created by designers and people who know how to design. But most people within an organization aren't designers and they don't get a look in on that. There's nothing they can do to influence that. But language is different. Language is used by everybody through the organization, whether it's in speech or in writing. 
So it has to come from within the organization. It has to feel true to the organization. And so this team of champions is how I make sure that it feels real and it feels relevant. Because when you're asking people to change how they write, and for some people that won't be much much of a change, but for others it could be quite a big change. Uh, when you're asking for that change in behavior, you're actually asking people to change something about their sense of professional identity or personality. And you're also asking for, I guess, what you might call discretionary behavior. Now, they, they, you can't make people write differently, really. Right. So you need to get them buy-in. You need to get them along on the journey. And so using this team of champions and starting from what's already working, you can create some guidelines that feel true, that feel real, and reflect the real values, the genuine values. And when I say genuine values, you know, sometimes you see values up on the wall but you know that the actual behavior isn't what, that's not what's actually being followed. So values need to reflect what's true and they need to be ambitious, but they need to reflect reality. Otherwise people don't believe in them. Right. So if you create something that reflects what the organization is genuinely like at its best, then it's very easy for people to follow. And that I found is the way to, without telling people, is to encourage people to adopt the new tone. Then the next step, I suppose, is how you roll that out. So I work with these champions and I train them up so that they can train their teammates, so they yeah. can train their teams. And that way it's coming from within. And I'm leaving the skill within the organization. And that makes sure that it's sustainable once I disappear as a consultant. So you then have a team who are able to keep the work going, who can coach people who are on hand in their teams. And they get their teams rewriting letters and emails and all the communication that goes out to customers at different stages in the journey. But that skill that is then within the organization, and that's what makes it you know, last beyond just being a launch or a project. Yeah. I want to think a bit more broadly about the world as a whole and how language is used. It can soothe and it can inflame. And in this world... Recently, it seems like most people go for the latter yeah. to inflame problems rather mm. than to, especially in social media. Yeah. What's your advice for using the right words at the right time? I think this comes down to empathy and understanding your audience. So who you're writing to and then being conscious of the language that you're using. Because one of the problems with social media is that you have uh, far fewer characters, fewer words to get your point across. And because it tends to be done very quickly, things can sound or feel more aggressive. The tone can come across in a way that you didn't necessarily intend. And there are some interesting sensitivities popping up. So I came across some research recently that, especially amongst younger generations, uh, full stops at the end of sentences in, say, WhatsApp or Snapchat or text are seen as as um, abrupt. <laughs> now, you and I, you know, sort of in, in our middling years, perhaps, that might seem quite bizarre. And my understanding of it is that when you're rattling on, and, and what's interesting, when I'm constructing a text, I tend to put the whole message in one text or WhatsApp or whatever it is, and then I press send. But what I notice with my kids who are 14 and 16 is that they'll send me a message and then the next sentence, and the next sentence, and the next sentence, and they're separate sentences, and none of them have full stops at the end. Right. And because they're a separate message, they don't actually need the full stop. Right. So 
I think these forms, these media are changing how language is being used. And so we need to be conscious of that, but also we need to be aware of our tone and how it might be coming across, how it might be received. And there are subtler, more gentle ways to phrase things that won't inflame. And you see it, don't you, in forums or on Facebook groups where something that feels sounds a bit firmer than the person probably intended then gets picked up on by somebody else and that gets amplified a little bit and the next message is amplified a bit more and you get these sort of flame wars at which point it's part of the best to walk away it happens to companies absolutely it happens you know to those corporate accounts where you think oh maybe that's not what they really meant but that's what it sounded like yeah and and this is where i think the tone of voice in messages for companies is extremely sensitive and vital because quite often the messaging is trying to control the messages within the organization. And so I've worked with social media teams who have messages passed down from, say, the PR team, and they're not given much license to flex and respond. But somebody sitting in in social media is chatting with somebody and they're in a moment. They might be getting in touch because they're angry. And so that person in that team in that moment is having to deal with somebody's emotions, that their feelings, whereas the PR team, when they crafted those messages, were isolated from that emotion. So there isn't that connect, that empathetic connection. And this is where I feel actually that training that helps social media's teams to respond in the moment and to feel and adapt to how a customer might be feeling can then send messages back with more empathy. Yeah. And it kind of requires listening, right? It kind of requires a conversation, not a statement and then, you know, a flame, right? It, it requires listening to the other party. Absolutely. And a conversation rather than a speech. Totally. And and the thing is that in English, this is quite difficult. So I think in the US, people are a little bit more direct. Certainly in the UK, we tend to we tend to use a sort of a passive aggressive tone quite often. Yeah. And we we are less clear about expressing when we're upset, when we're angry about a situation. And so we'll tread quite carefully. And, and that does create problems. So, you know, back to when I was working with the Indian web chat teams, one of the problems they had was interpreting and understanding when a UK customer was actually angrier than they were sounding. Because we will disguise that anger and we'll couch it. Yeah. And that is actually very difficult. And, you know, I've been working with social media teams in the UK looking after British clients, uh, you know, UK customers. And even then, for native Brits, it can be hard to interpret what somebody's saying. And the subtleties in the language and the tone that the customer's using can be very hard to read where somebody is angrier than they're giving across because we're very polite here. Yeah. You know, I was born in the UK, but I've lived mm -hmm. in America for decades. And even I working with uh, UK clients and when I worked for UK-based businesses, you'd have a discussion with someone about a project, a website, whatever it is. And uh, you'd think, oh, they like it. And then you'd find out later on, no, they don't like it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because they, but they just couldn't bring themselves to tell you. No, absolutely. And actually, it's a game I play sometimes when I'm uh, when I'm running training, and uh, especially with international audiences, I'll put up some sentences on a slide, and it might be, you know, if a British person says, you know, that idea is okay. Yeah, it means they hate it. What we it. really mean is <laughs> it's shit. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
And I actually got to the point when I was working for this company that we worked for, which was based in the UK, Mm. where I had to kind of tease out of people what they really thought. Yeah, yeah. Because you'd find out later that they didn't like it, but they couldn't tell you in person or they'll dash off a flame of an email to you rather than tell you in person. And, and, you know, I'm a pretty direct person, even Mm -hmm. though I was born over there. I just want to know what you think. Tell me, you know, it can be a problem. And that's another issue with language. Absolutely. It's making me think of, you can even say to a British person, you know, tell me directly, and they still won't. They won't be able to. It's a part of our culture. It's a, it's a fundamental part of our culture that will will avoid the point. You know, even, you know, if you think British person, if they say, I'm sure it's my fault, they <laughs> no, know that not. they mean it's your fault. <laughs> right. um, and it's very difficult for different cultures to interpret. And I, I mean, it's difficult for us sometimes, you know, we can't always read that. Right. Um, I wonder if, as our language becomes more international, whether that's going to change. But it's interesting to understand, especially if you're trading internationally, yeah. um, how to interpret, how to respond to it. One more question, and mm. then we can wrap up. I wasn't going to ask you this, but it kind of occurred to me. Do you find that Americanisms are more common or have they started to wane a bit? I know back five, six, seven years ago, when I would work with international clients, we would write in American business English, I used to call it, ABE. And my sense is that maybe based on the last four years of uh, kind of disengagement from the world that the U.S. has been undergoing, and I don't want to get into that, Hmm. And I wonder whether the influence of American language on English has waned. I think it's, you know, as you say, it has grown over the recent decades. And I think it's still very much there. But the th- interesting thing about English is that it's been co-opted by so many nations. As you know, mm-hmm. so English is the business language of the globe. And you know, how long that will last with the rise of China, I don't know, but it certainly is at the moment. So business English, as something slightly separate from UK English and US English, I think actually has a different nuance within Europe, certain terminology comes up. So I think it's evolving and adapting. And most of the businesses I'm working with are working in business English. But one of the things that we're trying to do in tone of voice is get some sort of character, some personality into language. And so that one is, that's quite difficult to do in quite a subtle art. So I've been working with a Swiss eyewear brand who are trading across Europe, including in the UK. And obviously in a German store or an Austrian store, they're using German, but their overarching, you know, their product naming and point of sale is in English. And their social media is in English because they're speaking to people all over the place. So they are using a European English and we're trying to get some colloquialism because colloquial language gives character, gives color. Yeah. Um, and it's very hard to have personality without. So I think there's a lot of adaptation going on across the globe. And I think as maybe an economic emphasis moves towards China, something may change there. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. I mean, I've been thinking about it recently because um, my sort of new model for kind of how for culture and brand, I've called my donuts because it's a, a circle 
with a hole in the middle. Yeah. And I've used the American spelling rather than the UK spelling, just because I think the British spelling of donut is ridiculous. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. <laughs> and it's yeah. too long a word. So I've actually used the US, but people will cringe. Some people will cringe at that. And Dunkin' Donuts has removed it from their name. Have they? Yeah. Now it's just Dunkin'. Really? Yeah. I had no idea. <laughs> I think because it, you know, they sell more than donuts. I think that's yeah. that was their point. And they, they're up against Starbucks and uh, yep. companies that don't necessarily sell just sweet treats and coffee in the morning. Mm, very interesting. I think the U.S. influence is still there. I was working with a, a British pudding company just recently, and they were working on a range of puddings based on the sorts of cakes and things that you'll get in pastries and things that you'll get in a Starbucks. Yeah. So it's interesting that a British company is developing a range based on what a US, what you would find in a US business. So that mm. influence is still obviously is very, very strong. Yeah. It's not going anywhere very fast, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, I know that kind of 30, 40 years ago when I visited the UK, one of the things I noticed was that every business on a high street, well, a lot of the businesses on a high street were American. There was Burger King and, you know, and uh, McDonald's and just it kind of felt like I was in America, except yeah. uh, people were driving on the wrong side of the road. Yeah. <laughs> well, I could argue with that, but <laughs> no, you're right. And I think that has had quite a big impact on our high street. And there's been debates in the UK for many years about the, the prevalence of big brands mm -hmm. and, and a, a yearning to get back to sort of more local business, which has been very much influenced by COVID, I think. Big news over here. I don't know if it's the same in the US of the death of the high street, many store closures, but COVID oh, is same here. Yeah. yeah. And COVID has forced a lot of business online. And some of that will go back to high street, but a lot will remain online because we've developed the habit, I guess. Yeah. 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 So this conversation makes me realize that language, you know, we've talked about a wide range of issues and it makes me realize that language is kind of the overarching thing that we all have in common. And it's an important thing to understand. I think language relates to our values. It goes to the heart of everything that we believe and it expresses that. Mm. And it's a symptom of everything that we believe as an organization, as a person, as a country, as a nation. So, yeah, language is how all of those ideas come to life in the world. So, yeah, fundamental. Yeah. Ben, as always, uh, really interesting and fun chat. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me again, Mark. It's been an absolute pleasure and a joy. All right, that does it for this week. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Reed Edwards, executive producer, writer, and host of Confessions of a Marketer. Shep Salau is my producer, helping put together the shows every week. Annalyn Timball is my assistant, and she helps with guest relations and getting everything scheduled just right. Thanks, Sheb and Annalyn. Confessions of a Marketer is a trademark of Podco Media Networks, and this episode is copyright 2020. Stay healthy, and see you next time.